Welcome to Blunt History, a podcast dealing with the history of the war on drugs told, well, bluntly. We think it'll have you saying, what the F? We're your hosts, Natalie Brennan and Stina Perkins. Welcome back, Stina. Thank you, thank you. How did everything go with Matt Lasseter? Amazing. He's so knowledgeable about this topic. Um, I just really want to emphasize that this podcast wouldn't be possible without him. A decent chunk of the research we use for the show comes from his class. uh, And I I loved that War on Crimes class so much that I begged him to let me do research for him. So today's episode is really going to focus on much of what I discovered this semester researching a program called Stress. Stress. Yeah, stress. And we referenced it quickly on the last episode when I talked with Matt Lasseter, but stress stands for Stop the Robberies, Enjoy Safe Streets. Last episode, we discussed the riots, one of the most crucial pieces to the war on crime in America. This episode will focus mostly on the aftermath of these riots, specifically sticking with Detroit again. We're choosing to look into this history with greater detail because this history is so often left out of the larger historical narrative. And Detroit is so close to us as University of Michigan students. Right. We assume that our listener base lives just about an hour from this region, so we think it's important to be connected to one's regional history. So we're diverging a bit from drug history here, but the criminalization of race or regions is integral to the creation of America's carceral state. So remind me again, it's stop the robberies, enjoy... Safe streets. It's 1971. There's still unrest. In 1970 alone, 85 citizens were murdered during robberies, so there was real danger. But instead of Detroit looking more critically into fixing the socioeconomic reasons that maybe cause somebody to need to rob someone, the police commissioner of Detroit, John Nichols, launched a special task force to catch criminals. It was Nichols' belief that ordinary police tactics could not be used in order to stop this type of crime. Ordinary meaning... Ordinary meaning waiting for a crime to occur, the police then being called, and the robber being tracked down and caught. So we're talking about getting criminals before the act has been committed. Fully. This sounds like a recipe for racial profiling. It's Detroit. It's the 1970s. White flight is peaking. It is exactly a recipe for racial profiling. Then how did the police get away with this? Well, I think that's like always the question, but the police commissioner did a lot of research on the profiles of perpetrators and victims of these street crimes. This research found that the typical perpetrator was 17 to 29 and non-white. So this research was then used as evidence to continue targeting a marginalized population. Yes, and I mean, it's only the 70s. Stop and Frisk, a similar police operation, wasn't even banned until 2013. So it's hard to know how much of an issue racial profiling was at this time. But this was, of course, now looking back on it, a blatant example of racial profiling. So what is the proposal for stress? How is it different than other police operations? Mm, Yeah, actually, interestingly enough, the research that the police did on street robberies during this time found that the crimes were being blatantly carried out in full view of others on the street. They weren't late at night when no one else was on these streets. They were happening in broad daylight, right in front of the public view. So this is going to be a decoy operation, isn't it? Yes. The proposal was absolutely to dress up as citizens on the street and hope to be robbed. To avoid allegations of entrapment, 
The stipulation was that the officers could not wear expensive clothes or jewelry or carry large sums of money. Before the operation began, full disclosure was made to the media. So Detroit was aware of the operation? It appears, yeah. The people really started calling for the operations to end once things started turning violent. Within the first eight months of the operation, eight men were killed by police officers. Stress was only a two-year operation, and within that time, 24 men were killed. 24. 24. That is the highest number of citizens killed by any police task force in the shortest amount of time in America's history. Which makes the fact that Americans don't know about stress even crazier. Absolutely. And we go to the University of Michigan. Like we said, we live a mere 60 minutes from where these events occur, and this history is rarely taught. I'm a history major, and I have to imagine that if the state's university isn't talking about stress, then the rest of the country really hasn't heard about stress. So you got a really great opportunity to help expose some of this history this semester, yeah? Yeah, Matthew Lasseter really studies this operation. He asked me to try to uncover all of the names and cases for all 24 men killed in this operation. And? And I did. It was incredibly difficult work since this information really hasn't been written about. But I just searched and searched through Detroit Free Press articles between 1971 and 1973 until I found all 24 names. Right. And in no way do we want to make these men statistics, but I'm wondering what the demographic were of the men killed. Yeah. So the vast majority were black, black men in their early 20s and 30s. It's hard to pin down the exact number of how many, but the number I've seen the most used is 17. And again, all 24 of the people killed by this operation were men. There are points in this podcast where we try explicitly to fit women back into a narrative where they have been excluded. But there's obviously some gender dynamic occurring here where the conflation of race and gender is affecting black men in this specific operation. Which is not to say that women aren't affected by police brutality, especially today, but in this particular circumstance, it was all men. So it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that stress was created with the intent to catch robbers, catch them in the act before anything else escalated. Then how did this wind up becoming an operation to kill? Yeah, we obviously cannot say that the intent was to kill. I have no proof of that. None of my research backs that statement up, to kill the robbers of Detroit. But my research did find that in a vast majority of these killings by police officers, the victim was unarmed. Now, using the terms victim and perpetrator are confusing here since we are talking about police officers and robbers they were supposedly catching... Right, but the men were victims. They were unarmed and still shot. Yes, shot multiple times. And worse, eight of these 24 men were killed by the same police officer, Raymond A. Peterson. And was Raymond A. Peterson ever held accountable for murdering eight men? No. He was asked to leave the police department at one point, I believe, but he was always acquitted on all charges, which is worse because it was proven that Peterson would leave his own weapons at the scene. After he killed unarmed men. After he killed Robert Hoyt, for example, who had fallen asleep at the wheel and hit Peterson's unmarked police car. Peterson began shooting at Hoyt, and Hoyt fled the highway. When he finally approaches Hoyt, Peterson immediately shoots, He then left his own knife at the scene, which was obviously then proven to be his own through DNA testings. And this narrative occurs frequently? 
throughout much of the operation, yeah. There's another case where Peterson is dressed up as a hippie because, remember, this is a decoy operation. And the police officers experimented with dressing up not just as everyday citizens, but in absurd costumes at points. So in one case, Neil Bray comes at Peterson, who, again, was dressed up as a hippie, and Peterson shot. He claimed he thought Bray was armed because he had an object in his hand. The report says that the object was a broomstick. He was killed. In prepping for this episode, you mentioned a Rochester street massacre. Yeah, and that's where the operation really receives most of its backlash. This was absolutely a mess. The massacre exposes the inherent racism of this operation with the attitude, shoot now, ask later. A group of black stress officers entered, without authorization, the apartment of off-duty Wayne County Sheriff Deputy's apartment after spotting one of the men with a gun. He had a gun on him because he was an officer. He was also black. Inside the apartment, Deputy Henry Henderson was shot six times. Four other off-duty deputies sustained multiple gunshot wounds. Stress officers were charged with attempted murder, but all were acquitted. This event sparked a lot of organizing, including the Guardians of Michigan group and other advocacy groups to call for the disbanding of stress. And so did stress end here? Stress continued for another year. It was the killing of Harold Singleton, who was unarmed and merely exchanged curses with policemen before being shot at by three separate stress officers that really caused mass protest against the program. And Coleman Young, Detroit's first black mayor, comes into office in 1973, correct? He does. And disbanding the task force was a prominent part of his campaign platform. So what do we do with this history? It's so loaded. It's so packed with injustice and corruption and racism and tragedy. From a meta-analysis, I say we talk about it. It's part of the very reason I wanted to launch this podcast. So my instinct is to say we need to find ways to rewrite history that has been overlooked. Stress was one of the many task forces that were created during the post-riot restorative efforts. It was actually funded by the federal government under the Law Enforcement Assistant Act of 1965 and the Safe Streets Act of 1968, which were signed by President LBJ. We talked about this with Matt Lasseter last episode. This is a point in America's history in which the federal government begins funding these operations. But stress doesn't get the same national analysis or attention that similar efforts like the SWAT team does. But SWAT was federal, yeah? SWAT, which is Special Weapons and Tactics Team, was actually pioneered by the L.A. Police Department. So not only does stress not receive national attention, it doesn't even receive much attention in Michigan's own history. Even in Detroit's own history. Professor Lasseter said that the last time he checked, stress wasn't even included in Wikipedia's Detroit Police Department page. And stress will be a large part of the class Professor Lasseter is teaching next term? Huge. I can't plug this course enough. If you're still a student at the University of Michigan, look to enroll into History 393, Cold Cases, Police Violence, Crime, and Racial Justice in Michigan. Students will be working off a lot of the preliminary research that I did this semester on these topics, like the work we discussed today. The class will be building a website where this information can be more publicly shared. Right, which is essential to the idea that we need to discuss these issues, to rewrite the script in order to call for better justice and restorative measures. Spread of information, history, and rewriting the narrative is key. Rewriting the narrative is key. 
And this episode was an important one. We needed to take a look at this moment in Detroit's history that is so often looked over. Is there a TLDR we want to give to sum this all up? <laughs> yeah, a TLDL, a too long, didn't listen. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so much. I think my takeaway from this research I've done on this topic is that it is imperative that we discuss the long history of this type of policing. Policing that was federally funded. And then for how this history more bluntly fits into the war on crimes and drugs in America, the idea that after periods of rebellion or unrest, the suspension of civil liberties is justified in the name of restoring law and order, no matter the cost. Which is all the more frustrating because these were the very factors that caused the riots or rebellion or however you want to characterize this period of time. The same reasons why there were so many robberies in the early 70s in Detroit is the same reason why the riots were caused in the first place. And that reason is because of white supremacist policymaking that benefits some Americans and disadvantages others. Next episode, we zoom back out from Detroit's history, and we turn our attention back to... Nixon. In fact, we're going to the exact time period in which the war on crime is actually coined, 1968, when Nixon states, we must win the war against crime and disorder. If you want to see any of the documents we referenced in this episode, our sources can all be found on What The F's website in the Podcasts tab. Like What The F on Facebook to get notified when we release new episodes. I'm Natalie. And I'm Stina. And this was Blunt History. Blunt History.